and welcome to episode four's Q&A. This is Richard, I'm your host, and uh, thank you for sending in all your questions and let's answer them. But before we do that, send your questions to rwolfgram at gmail.com, R-W-O-L-F-G-R-A-M-M at gmail.com, or you can leave a short um, voicemail on our anchor page for our podcast, or you can give us a call on our Google voice number and leave a voicemail for us, and that number is 385 385- Three four seven zero nine zero six three eight five three four seven zero nine zero six. All right, let's get to your questions. Okay, so here's our first question. Richard, I love the podcast and I'm looking to start one of my own. I thought you record in a studio, but you recently posted a picture of your setup and it looks like it's in your bedroom. What do you record with and what software do you use? Okay, this was an actual DM, but I wanted to just share it because other people have asked as well. But my setup is actually pretty easy. I have um, studio quality equipment. I have a mixer, it's a six mic mixer. And I also have a lot of fancy gadgets that plug into it, uh, amplifiers and uh, mics and things like that. And it costs me a lot of money. And guess where it's sitting? It sits in a storage box and I hardly use it because it is so annoying to take um, out of the box, put back in and also to set up. And um, I, for this podcast, because it's really more of a one or two man podcast, I decided to just go with something a little simpler um, and definitely way more cheaper. And so the mic that I use is, um, hold on, let me look at this manual here. It is the Arts uh, Technica, oops, sorry. It is Audio Technica, um, it's, it's the brand, and it's called the ATR2100-USB. So it is a USB mic that just connects directly to uh, my uh, MacBook, but um, it also comes with an XLR uh, cable if you wanna just hook it up to a mixer. And it's so easy to use. Um, it doesn't require any drivers or anything. Uh, when I connect it to my MacBook, uh, it's connected to GarageBand. And GarageBand is what I use to record the podcast. Um, the podcast is hosted on Anchor. And um, and that's where I do a lot of my editing. Um, the background music and things like that all come with Anchor. And also, they host it. Um you can also just directly record to the Anchor app, uh, but I find that the quality of the audio quality is not very good, and I like GarageBand because it automatically um, does the processing of your voice and things like that. So uh, it sounds a lot clearer, and uh, I don't have to do a lot of post uh, cleanup. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then I, it's hosted on Anchor, and then. Once I have it all edited down and mixed down, I just save it and publish it and Anchor automatically uh, distributes it to the different platforms. Um, And it looks like there's seven platforms that they um, distribute to. And I'm looking at the data and the one for this podcast that people that most of you are listening to, you're listening to it through the Apple podcast. And um, and then the next one is Spotify. So pretty cool. The only money I've really had to spend um, on this setup, I think the mic was around 60 bucks. It comes with a stand and it comes with the different cables. Um, and then I already had a um, Skullcandy headphone that I use as well. 
And uh, that was pretty much my expenses for that. I got the microphone on Amazon. And yeah, it's pretty easy just to start a podcast. Uh, very easy setup. Uh, the entry barrier, it, there's really hardly any aside from, you know, if you don't have the know-how on how to record audio um, and things like that. The production part is really just more the harder part. Um, if you have the prior knowledge, it's not that hard. But even just like picking it up, I'm sure is pretty easy for most of you. So um, this is what works for me. And um, if you're looking to do a podcast and you don't have experience in like a studio or mixing sound or things like that, I would highly recommend this setup and also um, hosting your podcast on Anchor. And thank you for the question. right let's move on to question number two richard in your last q a you mentioned that lgbtqi tongans weren't mentioned in mariner's account are they not mentioned in other accounts i have a feeling they were purposely erased from the narrative by the influence of christian missionaries what do you think of this theory hmm i i think your theory might be hmm, could be correct but here's the thing mariner um as far as we know from his account, was not filtering anything through a Christian lens. And so I don't think that he would be purposely hiding anything because of his faith. Uh, He was young, so I don't even think that's something that, you know, somebody of that age would even think about. He certainly was not a missionary. He was not proselyting. Um, He was just a cabin boy on this ship. And I think, you know, some of the things that he, um, some of the cultural practices or just some of the things that he witnessed that he had a hard time processing was really just more because of he, he comes from a totally different part of the world and they have different cultural norms over there compared to when he was in Tonga. Now, mind you, this um, account of Mariners was written, uh, as I mentioned before in another podcast, uh, written when he was much older. And so maybe he converted to Christianity or maybe just the culture of patriarchy at the time uh, shaped um, some deliberate uh, withholding or just uh, erasing of that kind of information if he ever encountered it but uh, we don't have any evidence of that so I don't want to look for a smoking gun where none exists but I will have to say and just going back to what I said in the last podcast I believe it was happening under his nose and he just didn't understand it within a Tongan way of thinking and in a cultural a Tongan cultural context and so If you really understand um, kinship in Tonga and the way that operates in Tongan society, um, then I think Mariner would have recognized it and probably would have documented it. But uh, the truth is, is that he didn't. That's not to say that it didn't happen. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it happened because we are human beings and it is in our nature. And... I will just finally add that I think um, the the identity politics of today, you know, sex and gender, just doesn't apply to um, Tongan society back in the 17th or 18th century. 
a totally different time back then, a totally set of rules and cultural norms. And, um, and a lot of that has evolved over time. And so I think uh, we need to just be careful that when we are examining a, the past, that we don't apply the standards of today. We have to really understand what was happening back then at that time. Dear Richard, please don't read my name on the air. Okay, I normally don't read names unless you really want me to. Um, but thank you <laughs> for this question. Um, Tamatangi Tonga recently posted an article about the discovery of the first settlement in Vava'u. Uh, where do you think the first Tongans came from? And how does this fit into the story of Aho Eitu, the first Tuitonga, that you mentioned in a previous episode? Okay, this is an excellent question. So let's unpack all of that. So just some background on this article that just uh, was published in the Matangi Tonga this week. Um, a archaeologist, I have a hard time saying that word, an archaeologist by the name of David Burley. He is a Palangi man, I believe from Canada, uh, has been doing a lot of excavations in Tonga. And so through his work, he has been able to find the first site of settlement in Tongatapu in um, the village of uh, where Nukuleka stands today and for those of you that follow this kind of stuff um, you know this is what they call this is Palangi archaeologists came up with this term but they call them the Lapita people and Lapita is named after a type of pottery that they carried around with them and I believe the name originates from uh, New Caledonia or somewhere in that area. But the prevailing theory is that the first Polynesians came from Southeast Asia, uh, specifically Taiwan, and they headed down south to the New Guinea region, uh, which today is uh, what we know as Papua New Guinea, which is split into Indonesia on one side and then Papua New Guinea on the other side. Um, but if you look at a map, there's a bunch of islands just right above that huge massive island of New Guinea and in the Bismarck archipelago is where they um, mated with um, the people of that region and so in our DNA if any of you Polynesians are to ever take a DNA test and I've done mine um, in my DNA profile it shows that I have um, this Asian DNA that comes from Southeast Asia and also I show DNA from, um, from the New Guinea part of the world, which coincides with this theory that, that is now supported by DNA that uh, Polynesians today, our uh, genome shows that we uh, carry the DNA from these people who left Southeast Asia. And this is expressed in your mitochondrial DNA, which you inherit through your mother. And then on the father's side, it shows that, um, actually this is interesting, um, in Polynesia, specifically on the West uh, West Polynesia, there is a high concentration of um, Y chromosome that indicates a paternal link to um, Papua New Guinea. And so uh, that supports the theory that Polynesians are today are actually a mix of those two people and that as these people were sailing from um, Southeast Asia down to the islands of the South Pacific, they stopped and they 
traded with these people in um, in Papua New Guinea and also had um, sexual relations with them. And so that's why um, their DNA shows up in uh, Polynesian people today. So how does that all fit into the story of Aho Eitu? Well, Aho Eitu comes way later because um, we now have archaeological evidence through the work of David Burley that Donga was settled um, 2,800 years ago by what we call now the Lapita people. So those were pretty much our our ancestors. And um, I don't know what they call themselves, and so I'm going to try not to use that L word um, too much because I think it takes away from who they are. But, okay, so here's the thing. Ao Eitu didn't come on the scene until about 900, 950 AD. But the first settlement in Tonga is dated to about 900 to 1000 BC. So what were Tongans doing for nearly uh, 2000 years? Well, maybe that's not the way we should frame it because they wouldn't arrive in Tonga and just automatically become Tongans, right? And if we think of um, human nature and the way we socially construct things, um, it would take a while to develop what Tonga is, um, what does Tonganess mean, to create the institutions that support all of that. And so um, that probably would have taken years to just build that um, cultural uh, foundation. So with that said, um, here's the interesting thing, okay? So we have this um, legend of Aho Eitu and how his father, Tangaloa Eitu Matupua, you know, came from the skies and impregnated um, Ilaheva. Um, we talked about that in another episode. And so the first Tuitonga that came out of that union was Aho Eitu. But here is what we don't talk about. So we have this legend, and this is what everyone believes in. But there's also a lot of evidence that um, Tangaloa Eitu Matupua was actually uh, Samoan. So according to Hufanga Augustino Mahina, or who we all know as Dr. Mahina, he says, Over time and space, Tongan society became more settled, shaped strictly by both internal pressure and external influences. The external influences came in the form of imperial activities, beginning with the Tuipulotu Empire in Fiji and followed by the Tuimanua Empire in Samoa. In other words, Tonga was under considerable influence from the imperialism of both Fiji and Samoa. However, Tonga was able to free herself through bitter and bloody wars from the imperial domination of the Tuimanua, which eventually led to the formation of the Tuitonga Empire around AD 950 in the person of Aho Eitu, the first Tuitonga, whose father was a deified Samoan high chief Tangaloa Eitu Matupua, and the mother was a Tongan woman, Ilaheva Vaipopua, of great noble birth. So there's that. Here's the interesting thing, though. Um, so from Burley's work um, and what he's been able to um, excavate and discover in Tonga, though settlements and uh, the artifacts that he's discovered there have been carbon dated, and right now they are like the oldest Polynesian settlements in all of the Pacific. And so it'll be interesting to see how that jives with uh, the timeline of Aho Eitu and even just the existence 
um, and the domination of the Tu'i Manua Empire before 950 AD, like what was going on in Tonga around that time, you know. So um, there's a there's also a lot of people who are still suspicious of the work that David Burley and his crew are doing in excavating these sites um, because it doesn't align align with some of our legends and some of our lore and just what we know about our our people and um, personally my opinion I side with science um, because I just know the nature of humans and human beings you just have to be around them and you just have to study history to know that we are very capable of some extreme bullshit and we also have people who are gullible enough to follow it and so you see that all throughout history you know and so even with this story of um you know deified ancestors and things like that uh i just don't i don't believe it now science is not always right there are some things they get wrong and yes, science has been used to perpetrate some of the worst atrocities of mankind. But here's the thing I like about science is that there is a method. Um, there are ways to collect and gather evidence. And facts are always updated when new things are discovered. You know, and so that's more than I can say for like human beings who create myths and create religions and when comparing the two i choose to side with facts richard were the hawaiian slaves to the tongans okay i can see why um anyone would think that because um in the book we see some examples of when uh, Mariner witnessed um, Finau Ulkalala giving orders, um, whether it was to take somebody's life or that one incident when they had um, informed Mariner of what Finau Ulkalala uh, wanted from him. So let's talk about that. Um, what we have to remember, so going back to the first episode, uh, when the Porto Prince made a stop in Hawaii, before um, departing to Tahiti and then uh, ending up in Tonga by accident. Um, they had picked up some crew members from Hawaii to accompany them on that leg of the trip. And so um, what we have to remember about Hawaii is that they have been exposed to uh, balangis, uh, to ships coming from Europe, from American ships coming through uh, Hawaii all the time. And so they were already used to it. And uh, Kamehameha at the time was fighting a civil war himself and trying to unite all of Hawaii under his rule. And so he had acquired muskets through trade with these um, European and American ships. And not just in trading with them, but then they also taught him how to use it. And he actually had um, people from Europe or from America um, fight in his wars or at least uh, they provided support with um, some of the arms that uh, Kamehameha had acquired or bought from them. And so um, my guess is that the Hawaiians that uh, went on the Porto Prince and ended up in Tonga, and by the way, they were spared. And so when they, um, in episode two, we talked about how they were all, um, you know, the crew of the Porto Prince was uh, was just like slaughtered and clubbed to death but the hawaiians were spared because the tongans understood that you know hawaiians were their cousins uh 
And Tui Tui, um, if you remember Tui Tui, he was Hawaiian. He had been living in Tonga for a while prior to the arrival of the Port au Prince. Um, he was a passenger on a um, American ship that was going to the uh, Manila, Philippines. And so um, it doesn't say whether he was dropped off on his way there or on his way back. But the ship dropped him off in Tonga and he lived pretty much the rest of his life there. Um, and so Tonga and Hawaii, you know, almost being the same in that they have um, a king or a chief that people have to report to. Um, I'm pretty sure that the Hawaiians that were on the Port-au-Prince pretty much understood, you know, their role within Tongan society. And so when they were told to do something, they did it. And, um, you know, so going back to the incident of the Tongan man who climbed up the mast and was uh, uh, just uh, being a little too greedy with the iron. Um, and so uh, Finau Ukalala ordered uh, Mariner to shoot him down and Mariner refused to do it. And so he um, had a Hawaiian do it. And that Hawaiian man just did it with no questions asked. So no, the, uh, the answer to your question is the Hawaiians were not slaves. They, let's just say they were um, more obedient. They had a better understanding of Tongan cultural norms and Tongan society and how to operate and function within that society than Mariner did. So hopefully that answers your question. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention that in the book, um, there is an encounter described by Mariner of um, Kamehameha coming on to the Port-au-Prince while they were docked in Hawaii and he had a brief meeting with um, Captain Brown. So pretty cool. Okay, and here's our final question for the night. Richard, can you tell us more about Dupo Moheofo? She is such a badass. I totally agree. So this is what I know just from my research, okay? Very polarizing um, person. And I see that in a lot of, um, of the scholarship and a lot of the paper that's been written about Donga and specifically about her rise to power, um, they usually portray her as this power-hungry um, woman. But from just reading and understanding more about um, her situation, she is totally driven by, not so much by power, but by preserving um, the rank and succession of her clan. And this was also about just preservation. And not just preservation of herself or her clan, but also of tradition. And so one of the reasons why she made the move that she did to become the Tuikanokpolu is because she really felt that um, Mumui, who was expected to become the next Tuikanokpolu, didn't deserve it because his mother was a Fokonofo. And so those of you that are following me on Instagram, I um, put up some posts about the Fokonofo the Moheofo and the Maitaki because these were very important positions in uh, Tongan culture because it totally defined rank and succession and they all come from the woman's side. Tupo Moheofo was definitely high ranked if not one of the highest ranking uh, women and even Tongan at that time. Her mother was a Tamaha 
and that Tamaha was the daughter of a Duitonga Fefine. So, Tupou Mohelfo definitely had the pedigree. So, Tupou Mohelfo's father is Tupou Lahi, and Mumui is the half brother to Tupou Lahi. And Mumui's mother, uh, Afogonofo, so Afogonofo is a, um, I guess the modern term today would be a concubine or a secondary wife. Tupou Mohelfo herself was a principal wife to the Tuitonga. Okay, I'm just going to say his name because um, I've been dancing around the name. I've been to like Tongan history conferences where some of these um, academics also dance around the name because of like they're just trying to be polite. But this Tuitonga's name was Paulaho. Yeah, you heard me, Paulaho. He was the Tuitonga, the 36th Tuitonga. And everyone calls him Pau, but his actual name, Paulaho. Anyways, so Mumui is actually Tupou Moheofo's uh, paternal uncle. And his son, Tukuaho, is Tupou Moheofo's first cousin. And his mother is a Fogonofo, and so he is of lower rank compared to Tupou Moheofo. In the last episode, we talked about Tuihalo Fatai. Um, he was the one that went to Fiji. You know, he was just a little bored in Tonga. So he wanted to go to Fiji and fight and become a mercenary. And then he came back to Tonga um, to help Fina Ulkalala and Tuponiwa when they were trying to fight their way out of the island after assassinating Tukuaho. But uh, Tui Halafatai, he became the Tui Kanokpolu, the ninth one. And he is the brother of Tupo Moheofo. So Tupo Moheofo has this reputation of being a schemer. And one of the things that she did, um, uh, well, she was blamed for doing this, but there are other uh, historians who disagree that she was actually, you know, the person who um, was pushing buttons behind the scenes. But during uh, Captain Cook's visit in 1777, he was able to witness an uh, uh, Inasi ceremony. What was unusual about this Inasi ceremony is that it was happening in December of that year, whereas Inasi ceremonies usually happen in October. And uh, Inasi is just, um, the ceremony is the, is the presentation of the first fruits, um, the new yams that are offered to uh, the gods. And then this god, in, uh, specifically, we're talking about Hikuleo. And so the Tuitonga would stand in as the representative of Hikuleo here on earth um, because Hikuleo was the god or goddess of the harvest. And so failure to carry out the, the Inasi would result in uh, calamity according to uh, church and state in Tonga by Sione Latu Kefu. Okay, if you have not read this book, I highly recommend that you seek it out and get it. I actually was able to find a PDF of the entire book online just by doing a search on Church and Stay in Tonga by Sione Latu Kefu. I also had another copy that I bought off of uh, Amazon to my Kindle um, because this book is out of print. I've talked about this in another episode, but this is such a good book and just gives more insight into some of the things that Mariner witnessed but just didn't understand what it was. And, and I use this book to cross-reference uh, when I do my research for this podcast. So get the book while you can. Do a search for it and get it. Download the PDF and put it in your computer or your gadgets and read it when you get the opportunity. So back to this Inasi that uh, Captain Cook witnessed. Um, the, what was unusual about this Inasi, not only that it was held in December instead of October, 
But uh, Pau, Tatu Itonga Pau, or Pau Laho, as I mentioned before, did something unprecedented in Tongan history. And again, this is reading from uh, Church and State in Tonga by Sione Latu Kefu. Um, so Pau was trying to initiate his son, Fua Nunuiava, into certain privileges, one of which was that of eating with his father, which prior to this was tapu. And so you, uh, one of the tapus associated with Tatu Itonga, um, is that you cannot eat in their presence. And so uh, this was something new that he was doing. Um, his son was very young and he was eating with his son um, in public and completely just uh, rearranging or changing the protocols of those days. And so according to Queen Salote, Tupomoheofo was attempting to elevate her own son to the uh, Tuitonga position ahead of his father. And so that has never been done before um, in trying to install a new Tuitonga while the recent current Tuitonga was still alive. Another theory is that um, Pao was doing this because Fuanunuyaba's mother was not a moheofo but a secondary wife or a fogonofo by the name of Inumofalefa. Another theory is that Maulupe Kotofa, who was the brother of Pau, he was planning to acquire uh, the Moheofo from the Falefisi and not from the Tuikanokpolu line, which was the tradition at the time. Eventually, Tupo Moheofo paired uh, her son Fua Nunuyava with a Moheofo by the name of Tupo Falemei, and she was the daughter of uh, Tuihalafatai, so. Basically, he married his own first cousin. Hmm. So when Tupomoheofo became the Tuikanokpolu and then Tukuaho came in and put an end to that. And then he had his sister Tupoveyongo marry Fuanunuiava. And so that kind of put the end to the scheming of Tupomoheofo. Oh, and then there's one more uh, part about Tupomoheofo. She is also... Uh, implicated in the murder of uh, the assassination of her husband. So remember, her husband uh, was a Tuitonga. This is Pau that we were talking about earlier in a quest to elevate the Tuikanokpolu line above the Tuitonga line. And so she is said to actually have been um, involved in that battle, which eventually led to the death of Pau at the hands of Vuna. Um, they fought hand to hand combat and he was defeated and eventually killed, murdered. And this was done before she took the on the title of Tuikanokpolu. So I don't understand why um, she's such a polarizing figure and why she's villainized like that. Because I feel like she's doing what anybody would have done to preserve uh, what is rightfully theirs. And so interestingly, you know, when I was researching for this um uh, for the episode, the last episode, I stumbled upon a Wikipedia entry. And there are some of you out there who are still bitter about Tupo Mohelfo, and I don't get it. I just don't get it at all. But um, yes, uh, definitely a fascinating figure in Tongan history uh, because she is female, and you don't often hear, you know, of um, women who um, who rise up to power. But this is the thing with Tongan society back then: power, rank. All of that was determined um, and succession that was all determined by your um, mother side of the family. And so even though when we think of power, we think of like raw uh, physical power, 
But power can be many other things, and in Tongan culture at the time, power and rank succession resided in uh, women. And so um, we are going to be hearing of more uh, women in this story, so I'm excited for future episodes where we get to learn more about uh, some of the strong women in Tonga at the time. Okay, y'all, that is the end of this Q&A episode. Uh, just need to make a correction. I was saying a name wrong. Fuanunuyaba is actually spelled with a fakaua, so it's Fuanunuyaba. And, um, you know, sometimes these, uh, when you're looking at older texts and they didn't have like the fakaua or the macrons, and so people just didn't use it. But today you can like do that on your phones. Uh, keyboards have that kind of, um, ability and so um, I'm sure this is going to happen again in the future but uh, thank you again for tuning in um, tomorrow is Valentine's Day and uh, I hope you all have a happy Valentine's even though I think it's such a, a made up retail holiday but I know a lot of you appreciate it so hopefully you all have a good Valentine's I am thinking of dropping two episodes this weekend. So um, episode five is going to be recorded tomorrow, but I have Monday off because it's a holiday here in the United States. And so I'm thinking of recording another episode. So you might get a two for this weekend. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for your support of this podcast. If there's any uh, th anything I need to correct, feel free to reach out to me because I am certainly not one of those who think that I uh, walk on water and that everything I put out there is correct. I am not a uh, gatekeeper of knowledge. And so, um, yeah, reach out to me. And so if you have any questions for future episodes, you know the drill. My email is rwolfgram at gmail.com, r-w-o-l-f-g-r-a-m-m at gmail.com. Leave me a voicemail on um, our anchor page. And uh, some of you have been asking if you are uh, can support or if I take ads. Um, I do. So I don't know how ads work. I'm, I'm going to have to look into that. There is a handy feature on the, um, on the anchor app where you can put an ad. So that's the ad that you hear at the beginning. Um, but you can also make donations if you want to. So on the anchor page for my podcast, you can make a donation if you want. Um, I would greatly appreciate it. You know, it will go into just helping me with some of the costs of hosting this podcast. And maybe we can have a barbecue or something. I don't know. I think that'd be really cool. And thank you. Have a good night. As you can tell, I'm very tired because I'm, um, I'm going to confess. I've been um, drinking some vodka while recording this so that's why i've been repeating stuff so i apologize in advance i have tomorrow off so um y'all have a good day a good night it is 2 a.m here in salt lake city utah see you to all of you and uh, we will catch you on the next episode <laughs>